This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Oh, hi, hello, nerds. I am here with something very, very exciting. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I'm your host, Liv. Now, I don't want to raise any of my guests above the others because that that seems unfair. But also, I have been looking forward to this new translation of Ovid for over a year now, and I am actually buzzing with excitement, like the true dork that I am. So... Today I spoke with Stephanie McCarter, whose new translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses is available in North America, and oh, 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 is it not only good, generally, obviously, but it's the first translation by a woman in over 60 years, and so it's seriously, wonderfully refreshing and necessary. It's almost like we don't need to insert gender-specific slurs into translations where they don't belong. Weird, right? Like, what a concept. 
Stephanie and I talked about how she went about translating this work, what decisions she had to make, and what she specifically didn't want to do. Translations and the variations in them are some of the most fascinating aspects of working with ancient sources, and so we go straight into why that is. We had such an incredibly fascinating conversation. I learned so much, and now all I want to do is revisit countless stories from Metamorphoses because not only am I reminded how interesting and beautiful they are, but now I have a new translation to work with too. (sighs) So good. Okay, I will say though there's a bigger than usual trigger warning here because this is Ovid's Metamorphoses, and so there are a lot of references to rape, particularly because we talked about translating these stories from a feminist lens and thus looking at what other translations have and have not done in the past. That revolves a lot around these stories of rape because they're often the ones that are most mistreated in translations. We also use Roman names for the gods for the most part, so if you're confused by any, you can check the link in this episode's description where I lay out some of the more important shared names between the two groups. And with all of that out of the way, let's get to the good stuff. Ovid, Ovid, Ovid. Conversations, bringing new life to everyone's favorite Roman. Translating Ovid with Stephanie McCarter. I am so excited that you have a new translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses coming out that uh, I've, yeah, I've been looking forward to it forever. I was just talking about this off mic, but I'm going to say it again on here, but I'm very excited. It's very exciting to have a new translation specifically by a woman and somebody I know, like I've been kind of following along on your Twitter and like, you know, I think there's, there's parts where you're looking at it from a more like you as a woman point of view. And I would love to maybe just start right off with stuff like that. Like, what did you have to consider on translating this? Well, you know, when I think about my own identity as a woman, one thing that um, I was really interested in throughout was um, how Ovid presents the body, right? Because the body is so important. It's there in the second line of the poem, right? These are shapes turned into new bodies. And so the body is really central. And so I was interested in the way he deals with gendered bodies and, um, and the way in which he himself uses certain adjectives and words to gender bodies, right? To make, you know, to Mm. treat them as masculine or feminine or as defining those categories. And so one thing that I sort of um, discovered as I was going through and looking at other translations was the way that translators had translated Ovid's bodies in ways that reflected their own cultural ideas about the body. Um, Mm. And not necessarily, they weren't necessarily reflecting what Ovid himself was depicting about the body. So, I mean, just a couple of examples of this is, um, you know, Daphne very famously is defiant of expectations of femininity and her body is similarly defiant. So she doesn't have certain attributes that the Romans associated with femininity or she's never given these attributes that Romans associated with femininity. So when Apollo is looking over her body, Ovid is very restrained with the adjectives that he uses, but starting with 
really early English translations, you have um, translators throwing in adjectives. So things like her delicate fingers, not just her fingers, <laughs> right? Her teasingly tempting lips, not just her lips. Oh. Um, yeah. So, and then, so I was, I became really intrigued then. Well, what else are, what is it, what else are translators doing here? And um, so I, one thing that I really noticed a lot was that um, translators were really obsessed with putting breasts where they are not in the, <laughs> in the, <laughs> in the metamorphoses. So Ovid gives women um, pectora, like chests, right? All huh. human, you know, all humans have chests, yeah. and um, and so, um, but translators, whenever a woman's chest would appear, were translating it as breasts. And to me, this was a sexualization of the body in a way that Ovid himself wasn't doing. Ovid, in Ovid, the chest signifies identity and personhood, and in a transformation, that's really interesting because you want to see what's happening to identity and personhood. Um, so, for example, Pygmalion, as he is, you know, sort of sculpting his statue to life with his thumbs, if you look at a lot of the translations, they say, oh, he's fondling her breasts. And it's a little strange that in that moment, that's, that's what he's up to. Um, but when you look at the Latin, it's, he's, he's, he's sort of touching her chest. And to me, that was really a nice way of thinking that he's animating her. She's getting this identity in this moment. Yeah. Um, other, another example is where... Um, Mira's nurse um, is, uh, she's trying to get Mira to explain why she's just um, tried to kill herself. And in, to do that, she does what a lot of women in Epic do. She exposes her breasts and she says, you know, these are the breasts that nurse you, nurse you, you know, have pity on me. And um, Ovid uses the word inania ubera, the words inania ubera, her, she exposes her empty breasts. So this is a place where he actually does use the word breasts, but um, translators will, I mean, Inania to me suggested like, you know, this idea of nursing, nurturing, this person, this really close relationship the two of them have had, whereas other translators make an aesthetic judgment here. So her, mm. her breasts are sort of sagging, they're useless, um, old. I mean, so it's more about how the breasts look rather than how they have functioned. Yeah. And so that was a, you know, in thinking about the body, I do think that's one place where I don't think it was, I mean, women uh, who've translated Latin poetry often do this too, but I made a point, I think, because not just because I'm a woman, but because I am interested in, you know, gender and the body and the relationship between the two. And um, so I, ha I think I went in with eyes looking to questions like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so that was one example. And then, of course, in the stories of, of sexual assault um, in the epic, I was really wanting um, to translate those as clearly and as accurately as I could, because so often those stories had been euphemized by translators. Um, and to me, that was um, the, not only irresponsible in terms of, you know, translating rape as consensual sex, it's just ethically kind of... Um, a problem, but also I think you needed to make it as clear as possible for Ovid's um, larger theme of power, because mm -hmm. rape plays into this theme. Um, the word that he so often uses for rape is uh, is vis, violence, and it's a mm. sort of technical um, word that the Romans used for rape, but it also can, you know, apply to lots of different um, abuses of power um, in the epic and in Roman law. And so I wanted to really clearly connect um, 
the, the scenes of sexual violence to the larger theme of power and also to the larger theme of metamorphosis because the power is what transforms people in this epic. And, um, you know, metamorphosis dehumanizes and objectifies and so does rape. And I really wanted mm. to make those connections as clear as I could. Oh, I'm so fascinated by all of this. But so one thing that I... so. And I'm going to back my brain up because I'm taking in everything you said. And it is just all so exciting because I, I think about all of these things specifically in Ovid. I think more often than I think about them in a lot of other contexts. Um, and so personally, I don't I never got the chance to learn Greek and Latin. I did my undergrad and somehow nobody ever told me that was like vital. Um, and then I <laughs> finished it. And here I am now. So what I do instead is read like multiple different translations of everything in an effort to make sure that, you know, that I'm, I'm telling the best story and also addressing a lot of the things that you're talking about. Because often, if possible, I will try to find a more recent translation by a woman or by somebody who I just know has these things in mind. Obviously, there are like men who are also thinking about stuff like this, and that's great. Um, but it is something that is so important and so often like a huge failure in translations that we just get these completely, you know, different ideas of what is actually happening that is separate from the intention of, you know, of the original author. And when it comes to Ovid, I've always been fascinated because I think that, like, I always hear from a lot of people that they see him as somebody who was very anti-woman. Um, and I get that from, like, say, the Ars Amatoria or, like, things like that. But Metamorphoses, to me always seems to actually take into account how the women felt in mm -hmm. the situations they were put into, particularly in situations of assault in a way that, I mean, and granted, like Greek was not concerned in the same way because it's oral tradition and all the different things that make, you know, a lot of the Greek writing so different. Um, but to me, that is something pretty unique that Ovid is like interested in how the women felt. Did you find Absolutely. that when you're, yeah reading the actual Latin that I can't. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. I mean, yeah. Ovid is so interested. I mean, he he's very interested in the emotional depth um, of women, in the agency of women, um, and in the, and I think because, again, he's interested in exploring power. And um, women, are, that word is almost suggestive of disempowerment, right, to the Roman <laughs> mind. And so, what he's interested in is, you know, exploring how people, when they are disempowered, um, when they are transformed by power, can retain um, agency, can retain emotion, can retain identity. And so I think that, mm. uh, that really orients him towards the experience of women a lot. Um, you know, I think that people have seen the way Ovid um, incorporates rape into the epic in a number of different ways. And, you know, on the one hand, he is seen as, you know, um, almost um, exulting in its description too much, right? And so we get Ovid as this kind of voyeuristic uh, writer who, um, who almost enjoys writing about the emotional and physical trauma of women, right? And then on the other hand, we get people who think, you know, see Ovid as, you know, um, sympathetic, right, to the emotional plight of women. And, you know, my Ovid is, leans towards the latter. I mean, I really think that he... he he likes to turn epic on its head and epic is so interested prior to him with 
the, you know, the emotional lives of, of male heroes. And I think he was like, you know, um, I'm going to give my, my male heroes are going to be sort of flat and um, masculinity becomes reduced to sort of penetration, whether in bed <laughs> or on the battlefield. Um, but the women are going to get this rich emotional depth. And, you know, part of that is because I think he was so indebted to tragedy in the metamorphoses. He mm. was really interested in bringing other genres into his writing. But to me, it's also about his, you know, his own interest in power and disempowerment, um, looking at figures who are victim, often victims of power that don't usually get to take center stage. Um, it's not just women who are victims of sexual assault. It's also one figure that pops up repeatedly are grieving mothers, right? Mm. I can't think of any figure more sympathetic, more... Um, um, emblematic of powerlessness than a grieving parent and certainly a grieving mother. And, you know, he deals with them with amazing sympathy. Um, and, you know, that's one reason I love reading Ovid because I, I see, I can see myself almost reflected in his text more than in any other ancient work. Um, he, he really turns the focus on, on women characters. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad to hear you feel that way as well. That's. It's always been a favorite um, aspect of him for me. Him and Euripides, I find, are just my kind of go tos in terms of like actually considering agency and that idea just broadly that women were people <laughs> capable of <Absolutely>. emotions. <laughs> they uh, good and bad things, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. He, you know, it's no accident that Euripides and Ovid are the two writers who seem to have had a, a fascination with Medea, right? And talk about the the woman who exemplifies the bad stuff that women are capable of as well. But, you know, mm-hmm. that that's when you treat women as fully human, is when you recognize their capacity for both good and evil. And um, it's, you know, it's not an infantilizing view of women that they have the sort of innocence of a child and they're always good, <laughs> you know. So I, I love that about all of it. Yeah. Well, you've already brought it to Medea, which is perfect. So I I actually, just before we got on our call, was finishing writing an episode I'm doing on specifically Ovid's take on Medea and Circe, uh, because mm-hmm. I had a guest on whose who's episode will only air tomorrow by the time we're recording this, but but she's studying um, witchcraft and intersectionality in, in Roman imperial literature mm-hmm. and, and specifically was looking at those two characters. And Ovid's changes i guess the way he transforms these two characters into his own versions is really interesting because he gives them all of these bits and pieces that are not in the traditional greek stories um yeah i don't know i'm trying to form this into a question but did you did you have any thoughts on how he handles those two characters you know translating ovid's medea in book seven it's just so fun. I mean, I feel like he's just having a lot of fun with her. What what makes her so fascinating is that, um, you know, she has all the power of poetry that he likes to explore. Um, you know, Ovid exults in his own poetic power, and she too is a wielder of carmina, which is, a carmen is the Latin word for a poem or a song, but it's also the Latin word for a chant or a spell. And mm. so she is very much, um, I think he's drawn to her because she very much represents the power of the kind of magic that is just a part of poetry um, and the kind of influence it can wield over people. And um, 
And beyond that, I mean, she's just an incredible character. She, um, you know, I think he loves the fact that this is the young Medea that he's that he's putting here. Um, certainly at the beginning of book seven, um, she's the beginning of his exploration in um, these, you know, young women characters who all um, sort of succumb to illicit passion in some mm. ways. And so he really uses her as a way to get into that. Um, so, so you get Medea, you get um, Scylla, who falls in love with Minos, the enemy of her father. You get Biblis, who falls in love with her brother. You get Mira, um, uh, who falls in love with her father. And so she starts us on this sort of journey into women's, you know, tumultuous relationship with love. Um, and one thing that's another thing I really like about the Medea story is, um, and I this had never really hit me before I was translating it, because one word I was really interested in was the word, as I've already said, uh, vis, V-I-S, which mm. is the word for violence, and it's very often the word for, for rape. In Medea's story, um, she says that she is being dragged along by a nova vis, a, a new kind of violence. And, mm. um, and so in some ways, she too becomes, and that violence is the violence of love. And so she too becomes a kind of victim in that regard. Um, and so all of these women are being, it's a different force that works upon women in the, in the epic, the, the force mm-hmm. of love. And, um, and so you see lots of people becoming victims of that as well. And of course that makes sense because Cupid is, is a kind of dominator in the, in the epic. Um, he's a kind of imperialist um, along with Venus. Um, <laughs> So yeah, no, I, I I could talk about Medea a lot, but I I mean she's fascinating. Circe later, of course, is very fascinating. And the other thing that's really scary about these women is um, that they can wield power, sexual power, right? I mean we tend to think that the sexual power in the poem belongs to men, to, especially to the male gods, but these women can wield sexual power as well. And so you have people like Circe who um, will either try to dominate a man, like Picos, um, and if they can't, if she can't, then she will transform him. And so she has the power to transform male bodies. Medea has the power to um, to transform male bodies as well. And I think for Ovid's male audience, that makes these women particularly daunting figures because the, mm-hmm. the autonomy of the male body was something the Romans were keenly um, interested in and really wanted to uphold. And so I think that <laughs> these women are fascinating for that reason as well yeah one thing that like I'm not I don't dive into Rome too much outside of Ovid um, but I have been more and more particularly with guests and one thing that sort of was brought to my attention last year um, is the the really different way that the Romans portrayed witches um, in that they tend to be like kind of old gross hags that are just like trying to make people fall in love with them that's a really broad generalization but like (laughs) particularly in comparison to greek witches like medea and circe it's interesting to me because they are they're young and powerful for the most part and they're divine and all these different things that when you contrast them with roman has been just interesting uh but then you know you have ovid looking at these traditionally greek witches but making them roman but also keeping to the fact that like he is pretty explicitly telling mostly Greek stories in this work. And like, there's just so many things at play there that it's really interested me. Um, 
but then I realize I also <laughs> have to bring up the Medea's dragon chariot that we get in Ovid her like mm-hmm. voyages in this chariot right my favorite thing in the whole world <laughs> it, it, I mean the just the, the cinematic quality yes. of her flying through the the sky and and she has a god's kind of eye a god's eye view right she can see everything um in her past she can look over and I mean Ovid just has a great time letting her fly around the heavens um, going back to something you said that's so fascinating, mm-hmm. I had never thought about the fact that the Greeks had beautiful young witches and then the Romans had sort of old, I mean, stereotypically kind of hags, right, as witches. Yeah. You certainly see that in Horace. I mean, he, that he was, has... That was um, the one I was going to reference, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. In the Epodes, <laughs> he has this great, I mean, fabulous, terrifying witch named Canidia who, um, you know, kills young Roman boys and... Uh, dries their liver out into a love potion but uh you know i was thinking of apuleius too as you were um mm-hmm. as you were uh saying that and um you know apuleius his um the golden ass the metamorphosis however you want to title it, it lucius is out in the east and there are lots of beautiful young witches there so um mm. yeah, it's interesting now i'm gonna i'm just i don't know what i'm gonna say i don't know if i have anything interesting to say about that but i'm fascinated by it and i think it's fascinating that both of those ideas of witches have come into contemporary culture right we tend mm-hmm. to have the beautiful young seductress as a witch and then we have the you know stereotypical halloween costume of the the witch with the wart, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I, that's what I always think about when I'm thinking about these Roman ones. And yeah, it was because I had um, a guest on Maxwell Paul to talk about Canidia last year. Oh yeah, Canidia. And, yeah. Yeah, and, and we talked all about like other witches generally, but it was broadly about Canidia, and I just had no idea that she existed. Um, and then was like, okay, wow, this is like a very, very different style of witch because here I'm used to Medea and Circe because I like live my life in Greek myth. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, the the juxtaposition there is fascinating. I haven't ever, I have trouble getting through the golden ass, but I need to actually dive in and, and get to his witches as well because I keep hearing about them. But um, oh, I've really wonderful. only done the Cupid I mean- and Psyche. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, if you if you wanted to read some great things about witchcraft and gender, I mean, the, uh, Apuleius is the way to go. Just totally yeah. fascinating. I highly recommend it. I got it. It's the right season, so I'll have to pick that That's up true. for this my spooky season episodes. That's true. Uh, yeah, Cersei is interesting to me as well because she basically, you know, is really only ultimately in Homer, you know, in any kind of depth in in Greek myth, and then we have all these sort of inclusions of her into these transformational stories that really changes her character. Like I've, I've just for now reread, I think I've read all of them in the past, but recently reread the Glaucus uh, and Scylla story um, that, that really demonizes Cersei in this interesting way and like <laughs> invents this whole backstory that makes her horribly weird and villainous. Um yeah, and again, I haven't formed a question about that, and I'm just <laughs> pointing thoughts there. But <laughs> well, you know, and then Madeline Miller picks up a lot of that Ovidian material in, yes. in her Circe. So, I mean, it, I mean, that's that's the great thing about Ovid's Circe. Yeah, she's 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 very um, threatening and terrifying, um, but Ovid, you know, he never is totally. Um, 
he's not simplistic in the way I think he characterizes women ever. Mm. I think he is simplistic in the way he characterizes men sometimes. Cause I think that's <laughs> something he's interested in flattening out what like masculinity, what Roman uh, virtus is. Virtus is the word mm. for virtue. It's what all the Greek heroes try to have, but he flattens it out and makes it sort of just, I always translate that word as manly valor. Cause I want to get the idea of manliness in there because it comes from the Latin word vir, which means man. Right. Um, but with Cersei, I mean, even though she's, you know, she's, she's bad in the metamorphoses <laughs> and she treats poor as, you know, Scylla horribly, he still puts some room in there, I think, to, um, you know, to give her some depth and nuance. And that's why someone like Madeline Miller can go in and, mm-hmm. and, and find, find things that she can, um, you know, redeeming aspects of her. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, Cersei, she's, she's, again, you know, she's a poet. She's a wielder of Carmina. And that's mm-hmm. always really um, a dangerous um, a, a thing to contend with a, a witch who's a poet and a wielder of spells. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, that aspect. Um, one thing too, like in terms of redeeming her as well, or giving her that kind of depth, there's that great aside where he basically just says, you know, it could be that she just naturally falls in love with everyone, or it could be a curse right. from from Venus because it was her right. father who like basically <laughs> right. paddled on on Venus and and Mars. Is I, I right. appreciate that. It's like it could be her, but also it could be this. It might not be her. Right. <laughs> right. And you also, you know, Glaucus comes to her and he he's like, oh, well, I need some help from you. Only you can help me. I'm so in love. And you know, you know, she is expecting him to say, with you, right? And then yeah. she, he said, oh, <laughs> with somebody else. Who doesn't actually want me? Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, you can kind of see, well, I guess she does, you know, punish Scylla, but like the actual, <laughs> her turning around and being like, well, maybe you should like somebody who likes you back, like me. Like, yes, that's a exactly. little redeeming. Yeah. You know, she's the spokesperson for, for mutual desire in some ways. You know, it's a lot <laughs> yeah. better when you like somebody who likes you back. She might not follow yeah. her own advice, but at least we have somebody who. Who, who champions mutual desire. <laughs> yeah, she briefly tried. <laughs> right. um, <laughs> was there any section or, or like story that you found to be particularly, I don't know, either either just interesting or or something that you particularly found you wanted to do something different than, than a lot of the translators before? Um, you know, Callisto, I really wanted to do something different from what some of the other translators had done. And I, I've written something about this. It's going to come out later in the year in, um, in New Gesta, uh, the, the classics journal on gender. Um, but the main thing I was kept thinking about as I was reading that story, and it shocked me as I looked at other translations, is the way that this word creamen is handled. Creamen um, has a lot of different meanings. It can mean like a, a uh, most basically like a reproach. So it can be like a charge you level against somebody, but it can also mm-hmm. be like a reproachful kind of behavior. And so we get the idea of crime from this word. And um, and in Ovid, it very often has to do with sex crimes. And so, for example, mm-hmm. Arachne, she weaves Chilestia crimina, the crimes of the gods, into her tapestry. And this is clearly like rapes that the gods perpetrated. Um, the, the word shows up a lot suggesting rape, but, um, translators had very often, and that, so that word appears at least three times in the Callisto story. Once when Jupiter is actually raping her, it says that he revealed herself himself to her 
next in a criminal, not without crime. So it's very clear that he's committing a crime against her. And then later we're told that she doesn't want to tell anybody, um, but her face almost gives away the cremen. Um, Mm. And then we're told finally that it's her belly, her pregnant belly that reveals the cremen. And so um, every time this word shows up in the story, it's about revealing the crime, um, exposing the crime. And so really, I mean, Callisto to me is a story about how someone who's raped doesn't want that rape to be exposed because she wants she knows what the repercussions will be from that and Mm -hmm. so she very much you know she's trying to to hide it anyway um so I constantly translate Creamen as a reference to Jupiter's crime Mm -hmm. throughout but no other translation I looked at uh does that they either translate it as her crime or her sense of guilt about what she's done yeah um and so to me that I just thought that was an incorrect interpretation and it makes her, um, you know, self filled with self blame uh, or it suggests that Ovid might think she's done something wrong. Like maybe Ovid blames her for what's happened. And I never saw that when I was translating it. And that was one instance where I did my translation without looking at any of the other translations. And then um, I was wanting to give a talk on sort of feminist translation and the ways that feminist translation actually gives you tools through which to produce a more accurate translation. And so I thought, well, what's a good story for, for that? And, um, and I said, well, let me th- I'll just check Callisto and see what other translators have done. And I, so I read all the translations by the other translators and I was sort of baffled. Like, how do they get, how do they, mm-hmm. how do, why do they associate this creamin with her um, and not with him? And, and so, you know, I, I would try to be very careful when a word like cremen came up to think, well, what is the crime that's happened? Who's mm-hmm. perpetrated the crime? How can I make that clear? And, you know, other words, um, you know, other things I was trying to avoid in that particular episode was to, was to treat Juno like a caricature of a jealous woman. Mm-hmm. I think too often Juno is just deflated into a comical stereotype. Mm-hmm. because we have that stereotype today. I do think the Romans had the idea of the jealous woman as a stereotype, but not to the same degree that we have. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, when we read her character, we project ourselves back onto her. Whereas I think when you really look at her words, she's much more interested in or worried about Callisto being a rival, like somebody who could take her position away because Juno... Mm. Um, knows how her husband behaves and he's already seen what he's done with Io after he raped her he turned her into a goddess he turned her into the goddess Isis and so if I'm Juno and I know how my, what an asshole my husband is and what a propensity he has to to violate women and then to try to give them some recompense through promoting them to heaven I'm worried about my position mm-hmm. and you know her position is um, very perilous because it depends on the fact that he, her husband, is the patriarch, right? She lives in a patriarchy. She's a powerful woman, but her position depends on him. And so for me, what's more interesting about Juno, I'm not very interested in her jealousy. I'm really interested in her power and how she's trying to negotiate the precarious position of power that she's in, which mm-hmm. causes her to 
punch down a lot, right? Um, she's punching down to protect her power. But I also, you know, I didn't want to just reduce her to a villainess. I wanted to see her again as someone who is emotionally complex and she um, is unsympathetic in some ways, but very sympathetic in other ways. So that's a, that's a um, that particular story got me thinking a lot about how translators have considered these characters, you know, through the lens of modern stereotypes, and I wanted to avoid that. Another example of how translators um, translate things in that episode is when Juno refers to Callisto as her pilex, which means like rival. Translators will often say like, bitch, slut, strumpet, whore, <laughs> things like that. And like, well, I would rather get the idea of power, rivalry in there. Yeah. Um, so... We often want, we we think it's kind of fun to fall back on, you know, those kind of insults in our translations, but they're not really always there. No, and I think, but there's also a difference between like, you know, a a fun, like a fun word used in anger or something and ones that are so distinctly gendered. And, and yeah, and in the ancient world, like, and I mean, so many things you said there made me think, because Callisto is a story that I've also had trouble telling because always read different translations and yeah they're never kind to her whereas reading it particularly I guess as a woman like it's so clear what happens you know and you really feel for her in a way that I think like there's so many that you feel for but I do think there's something different in Callisto because you have you have the Diana aspect as well and like her just her connection to everything going on and then just what happens to her and the way she tries to deal with it. It's just tragic and sad. Um, and then, yeah, navigating, I'm going to call her Hera because that's how I always have to navigate right. her, is like, is so difficult in the Greek myths too, right? Like, because they also seemingly had this stereotype mm-hmm. or often, you know, it's also the translations being worked with. But I I know Hera also, you know, she's kind of always right. got that going on regardless. Right. But she is so hard to navigate because you can you can see the humanity in her and you can see her beyond the stereotype and what makes her tick, but it is really hard to separate the, those aspects from the parts of her that are constantly being included in all the different stories. Like, you know, so far beyond Ovid is Hera, just this woman who's depicted as jealous, just constantly. And it's like, I mean, it would be awful to have that man as your husband and try to navigate (laughs) that, but it's like, you know, it trying to pull her, from like the sort of you know idea of her from those stereotypes is is so tricky generally (laughs) it is it really is tricky I mean you know I just chose I think as I was dealing with these stories to see her through the lens of power as opposed Mm -hmm. to the lens of jealousy because power motivates everybody and um and I don't understand her jealousy I understand I understand what power has done to her because I think it transforms people and it transforms. One thing I've said a lot is it transforms people who have it as much as people who are the victims of it. And I see mm-hmm. her as a character who is transformed by power and her desire to have and keep it. And, um, and, and that puts her in a position where she's very easy to read as just a stereotypical jealous nagging yeah. wife. Right. Um, but I think, yeah, I just I just in my own mind needed to frame her differently. 
Yeah. Um, no, I like I like that view of her. And, you know, this is less Ovid specific and more just Hera broadly. But I also think there's the aspect of, you know, when your husband is the king of the gods, you don't actually have the option to punish him very much. And so if you are just struggling with your feelings of retaining your power, keeping your place, just keeping your life you know, as it is, like, the person that you physically can do something against is always going to be the woman. It's never going to be Zeus or Jupiter. It's, you know, so it's like, you can kind of see how she gets there, even if it ends up in a unfortunate, you know, stereotype of a a jealous woman, but you, you can see how it happens. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're worried about somebody taking your place as a goddess, well, and as the wife of Jupiter, yeah. yeah, you're going to try to demote them as much down the hierarchy of the universe as you can. So, you yeah. know, Jupiter, Jupiter turned Io into, well, a cow, obviously, but then into a <laughs> goddess, ultimately. And so, you know, here's Juno saying, well, how can I prevent that? Well, I'll turn Callisto into a bear, right? I'll make her into an animal as far down the hierarchy as she can go. And so to me, mm-hmm. it's not just about punishing the woman, although I think that obviously is probably there. But it's about preventing her from ascending to where mm-hmm. Juno is, right? Yeah. Does does Juno have a hand? And I don't, I don't know if this actually is even in Metamorphoses. So all, all, every myth kind of blurs together in my mind. But um, when when Callisto's son then causes her death, does Juno have a hand in that as well, or is that? Um, I don't think so. That's Jupiter. Um, is he doesn't want that. Um, I think the word Ovid uses there is nephos. It's um, for a son to kill his own mother is goes against the laws of religion. Right. Um, right. And so Jupiter prevents that and turns her into a star. But what Juno then does is she goes to um, uh, Ocean and uh, Tethys, who are the gods of the um, of the sea, and asks them to prohibit Callisto ever from going beneath, going into their waters. And oh. so this explains why the bear, the constellation she becomes, never dips below the horizon. And it's so sad because, you know, um, she's denied a bath, which is what what Diana denies her too. So, right, um, yeah, so it's just this, with Callisto, you really get the idea that Ovid knows how trauma doesn't stop at the end of an assault. You know, there are so many ways that the trauma just gets, you know, gets locked into a cycle. Um, And so forever, Callisto is going to be going through the heavens, denied a bath. And it's just so sad. That is, I'd never made that connection. And oh, yeah, it's just her story has got to be one of the the harder to read. Like a lot of them, I think I can disconnect enough. Um, because of what they are, but that one is very tough. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. 
Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. One you brought up earlier, though, too, that I desperately want to talk about is Arachne, because that's one of Ovid's most incredible stories in the whole thing. How was that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love Arachne. I I love teaching that story. I love reading that story. Um, You know, again, here is another way that um, gods are protective of power, right? Humans Mm. in this particular epic are almost by nature defiant, right? We have something of the divine in us. And so we're always going to strive towards, we're always going to have divine aspirations in some way. And clearly Arachne has those. And so Minerva has to put her in her place. But my favorite thing about this is about, um, I just like Arachne's style, like her artistic style. She's, Mm. um, you know, she Minerva comes in and she creates this beautifully ordered, tapestry you can draw it very easily I have my students draw um, Minerva's tapestry and they always can I say choose which tapestry (laughs) you would like to draw and I've had some attempt arachnes and they just can't do it Um, so I love the the sort of chaos of arachnes tapestry it's you know it's it's accusing it's defiant not just in how it you know depicts the crimes of the gods it's defiant in its art as well it's just it's not to Minerva's classical tastes and I just mm-hmm. think that's great <laughs> it's, it's riotous in a way yeah well she's just fascinating generally because I think she is one of the very 
well, I don't know about few, but uh, again, like I'm thinking more broadly myth, but she, you know, she stands up to the gods in a way that not a lot of people can or do. Right. And the way she does it is just so beautiful. That tapestry just recounting all of the horrors they've perpetrated. And it's just kind of like, you know, I mean, obviously Athena was never going to pick her, but it, or to say that she won because the whole point or rather Minerva it's, you know, it, it, she was going to win. Like it was going to be right. Minerva. That was never an option. And so right. I think, you know, creating your piece of art that then just shows off every horrible thing the gods ever did as a way to just kind of say, fuck you to right. Minerva yes. is just like so satisfying. Right. Oh, and then it, what the fascinating thing is whose side is Ovid on? Because, yeah. you know, Minerva or, you know, Athena's power does not extend to Ovid as the narrator. That's what's so cool. And so he can mm-hmm. say nobody could find fault with Arachne's tapestry. And, um, and you know, she doesn't do anything to him. <laughs> so I think yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just the way he describes it. I remember it's been a while since I read that one. But, you know, just the way he describes what she creates just I all I remember enough other than just generally the the topics in there is just how much I thought holy shit this is so incredible just reading this sec this description of it let alone imagining what it would have looked like and you know yeah how what kind of message that sent interestingly this is one that very rarely gets depicted in art um Mm. I think because artists themselves don't want to try to recreate that tapestry right yeah (laughs) You know, it's 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 a perfect product of the imagination. We see it in our mind's eye. We can't replicate it um, in real yeah. life. No one's as good as her. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe Ovid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that counts. <laughs> uh, it's just. I mean, I, I've gotten so excited rereading a bunch of Metamorphoses lately. So this was such a perfectly timed uh, conversation to have with you. But his his work is just so unique in that way of. I work with the Greek myths all the time and all I'm telling my listeners constantly is, you know, they're an oral tradition. And so, you know, you might have these ideas of, of what kind of narrative structure a story should have or what kind of answers it should be able to give you. And you have to throw it all like throw that all out the window because it's never going to have that for you because that's not the way the stories were developed. But then when you get to somebody like Ovid, it's like he gives you all the answers that you wanted from so many Greek myths and he gives you all the details that so often are lacking. And I, I just love that we have him for that because it helps me so much in my life. <laughs> well, Ovid is a fabulous reader of the Greeks. I mean, he's a great reader of Homer and he's so brilliant at pointing out all the things that Homer missed. Right. So, mm. um, or Virgil too. I mean, so that any, all the literature that precedes him and um, we were talking about Medea he realizes that Euripides left a lot out. <laughs> you know, um, so he, he, Euripides just focuses on a small sliver of the Medea myth. And so Ovid says, well, I'm going to go and give you all the rest, right? And, um, and so, yeah, I think part of Ovid's project is to say, I notice all these gaps that are missing and I'm going to fill them in. Um, that's the great thing about mythology is it, the Greeks might have come up with so many of these stories, but they let them out into the world in such a way that they kept living in very vibrant ways so that Ovid could take them up, right? And so that Virgil could take them up. And so that 
um, you know, much later writers and authors and artists, poets could take them up. Um, so, I mean, they are these living stories that lend themselves to perpetual metamorphosis. And, um, and so it's, I think the Ovid demonstrates brilliantly how these myths will always be alive and they will be transformed. And he, the metamorphosis of the, that's happening within the myths is mimicked on the sort of larger level of mythology in general. He's performing his own metamorphosis. And then translation does that too. Um, you know, I think the translator is performing a metamorphosis on Ovid. And you have to have those metamorphoses or the myths will stagnate. Mm-hmm. You know, you, I, was, I was very interested in women's, um, you know, feminist reception of Ovid. And I saw my own translation as kind of taking part in that that active metamorphosis. So um, yeah, I'm glad to be a part of that and trying to keep these myths alive for new people and told in new ways. It makes such a difference having not only new translations, but feminist translations, because I mean, something you said earlier, but just the idea of them opening up new ways of seeing the myths, but also often, I think, I don't know if you use the word accurate or whatever it is, but like, you know, this like a bit more true to the actual original sourcing because you are, you're actively trying not to include your, like, you know, your pre-existing notions, or if you are, it's, it's more based in feminism, which is like explicitly trying to push back against, you know, these pre-existing things. And as somebody who has read countless translations of Ovid and so many other things, the differences are are so wild sometimes of the way people will will translate something and you're like this is horrifying like you just made the woman into like a complete caricature of a thing like and and then you read a different translation and she's amazing I mean it's it's fascinating the way that can can go and then I also think a lot of people who are coming to these stories without a background or, you know, like even just me, when I started this podcast, my degree was like six years old and I had never intended to use my classics degree. I did an English degree to work in publishing and then just loved classics and did it on the side. And, and so when I first started the podcast, I was like completely falling into these traps that are just natural ways of handling things, which is you pick up the first translation you find or the cheaper one or like all the different things. And then you end up with a lot of the times very old translations because if they're old enough to be in the public domain, (laughs) they're like dirt cheap and then they're terrifying often in a lot of ways. But even, you know, more recent ones that just happen to be the more popular translation are so often skewed or I, I, the, one of the first books I bought when I started the podcast is a book that I recently picked it up again and it tells the story of Medusa and like a lot of the time people will fall into like, or, or just use the Ovid version of Medusa and that's fine and good. It's obviously very different from the Greek tradition, but it's there. But not only did he use that part of, you know, Medusa and Poseidon were together or like had sex in, in Athena's temple, but he also says then that like Poseidon or she was, you know, she was transformed because of that, but Poseidon also like kept weapons that would be capable of killing her because he wanted to keep her from like terrorizing the world and and like things like this and I'm like what where did you get that from right right yeah like it's just nonsense and then there's another section where he specifically said that Pandora had been given the mind of a bitch and I was just like what 
why are we here? Why are we doing this? Like, so anyway, that's the rambling reason of, I think it's great that new translations are happening, particularly like feminist translations by women. It's so exciting. Well, I mean, the thing that speaks to what do we expect translation to be and do? And what do we expect a translator to do? It comes down to our basic understanding of translation and what it is. And, you know, I think the idea that people have of translation is that there's this sort of, it's math, right? There's this objective mm-hmm. ability to, to make an equivalence, right? To make whatever Ovid says or, you know, whatever, you know, Homer or whoever says to make, to just put it into a formula and you get the objective translation, which is why, you know, we, we think that we can do Google Translate, right? We can put it into <laughs> a machine and then the, the translator becomes unnecessary. And, um, but all of these things are created by people and therefore they're fallible. And the, and the act of translation too is not, it's not an objective process. You're, it's, the translator is constantly interpreting and the translator is a human, full, full you know, jam-packed with all kinds of cultural um, construction, right? Um, and so I think what I'm try, I've tried to own up to is that I am not an objective entity and try as I might, I won't ever be able to give an objective reading and an objective translation. I, who I am, my cultural understanding of the world will be imprinted all over this thing, whether I mean it to be or not, which is why I laid out very clear ground rules for myself going in. I'm going to own up to my biases as a, as a human being and say, these exist and they will probably be reflected in the translation that I do. But at least to try to counter that a bit, I'm going to use some feminist tools I have, mm-hmm. which are to understand how rape works <laughs> in the text, to think about the body in careful ways, try not to think in terms of gender stereotypes, um, and not to put in misogynistic um, stuff that's not in the original. And, I, and those rules... I think served me well as I was going through. I do think they helped me produce a more accurate translation. They certainly helped me see um, in other translations where these things were not being done. And, mm-hmm. you know, to some degree, every translation, and I know people are going to find things in my translation and they're going to be like, oh, she shouldn't have, she shouldn't have done that. And, and I want to know what those things are. I'm sure <laughs> that they are there. Um, but, you know, to me, this is what translation does. It's a, it's a, it, it's a much more of a, the translator's imprints are always going to be there. We, you know, there's not going to ever be an invisible, the translator can't be invisible. And I'm just sort of mm-hmm. trying to own up to that in some way. But, you know, also part of what I was trying to do in this translation was to create a work of poetry that, that could stand up in English as a work of poetry and no machine is going to be able to do that. And um, in that process, I think, is where a lot of, you know, the translation, the translator's biases and tastes are, are going to come in. Um, you know, my tastes as a translator will be terribly different from other people's. But this is my translation. I have to translate it according to my, according to my own tastes and, um, and outlook on the world. I think that really benefits translations, too, because... Like, I mean, personally, as somebody who does read multiple whenever I can, it is thrilling to see the differences. You know, this comes up most for me in Greek plays because those tend to be the ones where I can, like, you know, 
easily, I guess, refer to multiple translations. I try to do it for Ovid too, but I kind of have one that I like until yours gets here. I'm very excited. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I sound like I'm just trying to flatter you. I promise I'm like legitimately so excited for this translation. I think that is a I hope you don't open it up and say, oh shit, what have I done? <laughs> if it is, I won't tell you. Uh, no, okay. but it's, you know, it, <laughs> it's one of those things like seeing, you know, looking at two different like versions of the same passage and seeing the different choices that people made is fascinating. And I think it adds so much to the original work. And sometimes for me, like, you know, I, I don't know ancient Greek or Latin, but I thankfully have a good grasp on understanding, you know, everything surrounding it and also ways to interpret it. So like, if I have a big question, I'll just go onto Perseus and like click right. a word and be like, okay, great. I can still find it in the ancient Greek. Like I'm not, yeah. I can thankfully pronounce it well enough that I can like, <laughs> I can figure things out. And so, you know, between reading multiple translations and then having access to a place where you can like also, you know, find you know, like all the different variations on a word and then look at, you know, the decisions made is like such an incredible way of being able to interpret these things and understand not only what the, you know, the original writer was doing, but also what the translators are trying to do with their work as well. And, and it is important that it is like just a, also a poem, right? Like you don't, yeah. if it was objective, any kind of objective translation, if that existed would also suck to read, like it would be <laughs> right, yeah. not good. And so, you know, like, yeah. I think that is also so important. Yeah, it would probably be horrible literature, <laughs> right? Yeah, it would be garbage. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, this is what people have been writing about Ovid and translating Ovid for over 2,000 years. For And because, you know, you're not going to get two scholars who agree on how a passage should be read or interpreted. So you're sure as hell not going to get two translators who agree on how a passage should be translated. And both of those are worth reading both of uh, you know the different interpretations are always worth reading I know that I when I'm when I'm trying to teach a story with my students I read scholarly uh, interpretations that disagree with one another and it's in Mm -hmm. that you know looking at the disagreement that the text really gets illuminated and so I think the same thing is true of translations I mean I very often with my students will bring in different translations and you know they're able to read the Latin, but talking about the translations brings up things that we would never have seen mm-hmm. just looking at the Latin um, because we get to see ways that people have understood the Latin and interpreted it. And it's, it really opens up the text. And so I, I would love for people to read my translation against others because I think, you know, for example, the way that I talked about the Callisto episode, I don't think that the things I was doing differently will be immediately obvious unless you're looking at the other translations as well. I got really pleased because a, a former colleague of mine who's an Italianist, she um, emailed me and she said, I really would like to read your translation of the Callisto episode because I'm looking at, I'm, I'm looking at some translations and they're making me feel very prickly. And uh, <laughs> so I said, okay, fine. And I sent it to her and she wrote back and she said, I, I, thank God you've translated Cremen the way you have. And I was so pleased that she immediately got what I was doing differently. But you have to know the other translations to see that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, I do think of my translation as being in conversation, not just with Ovid, but with how he's been translated over time. And so the act of retranslation 
and seeing yourself in a tradition of translation is really important to, to what I'm doing. And I also think it was really important to what, you know, someone like Emily Wilson was doing. I mean, Homer has this long history of being translated. Mm-hmm. And so I think she really has been great at talking about that process um, for people, you know, seeing herself in a line of Homeric translators. And that's interesting and really important, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, the the one work I think I've read in the most translations would be the Odyssey, would being hers being you know the most recent and obviously my favorite. And yeah, I mean, just like I, I I've read you know the ones I read in school and then on the podcast, which or I think no, that one had come out by by the time she had published hers. So thankfully, I got to use that on the podcast. But you know, and then I've also I do reading episodes on the show where I just read. A translation straight without you know right. interpreting it and in those cases I have to use public domain copyright free translations which means right. they're usually at least 100 years old which means they're also interesting but you still get that that juxtaposition that like comparison between the two that I think still adds like a really interesting you know layer even if you also can objectively see why Emily Wilson's is considerably more readable than, right. uh, you know, Samuel Butler's, which I think is the one that I read <laughs> in that way. Right, okay, right. Yeah, I can see why. But yeah, it's just, I mean, it's incredible to have so many different translations and and be able to to make these comparisons and read them against one another. And I'm, I'm excited for that generally. One thing I do, I would love to talk about, because I realize we've been using the word women a lot, talking a lot about that. Right. And I would love to hear your thoughts on on the gender transformations that Ovid does that, you know, to our eyes could be read as, you know, sort of in the modern world would be trans or non-binary or things like that. Cause I know there's definitely a few in there that he covers. Right. You know, it's so interesting. I mean, when, again, one of the most fascinating questions with Ovid is the relationship between the body and identity. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so he really is great at, at illuminating this, this question, and, you know, I, t- I speak about this with my students a lot, when, um, for example, when Callisto is transformed into a bear, does her identity change, right? Is, is identity dependent upon the body? And so mm-hmm. you can really bring that into the conversation well with some of the, you know, the characters who do have a gender or sex transformation. You know, I'm thinking of Tiresias, right? The mm-hmm. question I ask my students is, does his identity change when his body does? And, um, and, and in that instance, it seems like, no, I mean, he, I don't, he's, he's Tiresias. And, um, and so, you know, I did wrestle with, you know, do I change the pronouns, right? When mm. Tiresias' gender changes, when his, when his body changes, rather, I should say. Um, mm. And, and I didn't for Tiresias, I used, I used the pronoun he throughout because I felt like he stayed, he identified with the masculine form right he he identified mm-hmm. it as identified as a male if this was a bit trickier because you know if this is born you know born you know female and is raised as a boy and um and it's not clear if if this identifies with which gender if this identifies right because mm-hmm. you know if this falls in love with the ante but knows that he doesn't have a penis with which to mm-hmm. penetrate Ionthe. And that, to Ovid, is the big problem, right? Um, so does, you know, one of my questions my students and I wrestle with a lot when we're reading that is, is if it's simply a queer woman or is if it's a transgender man? 
And can mm-hmm. Ovid just not see a way to let women be queer and in love, right? And um, so, you know, one thing I would recommend in terms of that episode is Ali Smith's Girl Meets Boy. Um, mm. She ha- she rewrites that in a really brilliant way. And she her characters um, converse about this. And she says, you know, the, the, the problem for Ovid was just he needed to give the story balls to make sex possible, right? Um, <laughs> Didn't really need those. But a character like Kindness, who starts out life as Kindness, mm-hmm. does seem to me genuinely to be a transgender character. Mm-hmm. I used he pronouns as much as I possibly could uh, for Kindness. Um, Ovid clearly identifies Kindness as masculine throughout, except there is the scene when Kindness is still inhabiting a female body where he is raped by. Um, by Neptune, and Neptune wants to make some kind of recompense afterwards. It's not unusual for gods to want to do that. He says, well, what would you like? And Kynes says, well, I want to be a man. I want to have a male form. And and I see that as, yes, it means that he thinks that this would make him less likely to be a victim of rape, but I also think that Kynes has been living in a way that conforms to expectations of masculinity. And mm-hmm. so he, he wants, he wants the male form. And, um, and, and so he's a really fascinating character. And immediately um, Ovid describes Kynes as wandering through, um, the, he uses a, a word that's often used as a, a penetration. He's penetrating the, the, the plowlands, the Arwa of Peneus. <laughs> and uh, it's a very, very, clear you know sexual reference he becomes a penetrator immediately and, and yeah <laughs> charles martin translated this as like he delights in his new felicity or something like that i um i tried to i tried to get i think i said like bushlands i tried to get some kind of you know thing that would evoke female geni- like genitalia but uh at any rate yeah i mean so kindness is a way that ovid can explore transgender identity very interestingly and then you have this uh, Kindness becomes an, a sort of impenetrable warrior in the Centauromachy. And um, you have the centaur who comes out and obviously doesn't like Kindness. And um, the way that he chooses to insult Kindness is by essentially calling him by his dead name. And mm. it's so interesting that that is such a, a source of... Um, you know, insult and disrespect in Ovid. And of course, transgender people would say that is a source of disrespect and insult as Mm -hmm. as well. And so it's interesting that the insult comes from the same place. And, um, but none of the warriors around Kynes see him as anything other than a a really amazing male warrior. And uh, I I have a soft spot for Kynes. I really love him. (laughs) Yeah. I'd always read that story similarly, just in terms of it not being um, because I think a lot of people will come to me with like, oh, but is it just, you know, an attempt not to be raped? And I just think like, it's not that that's not a way you can read it, but it it is so much nicer and, and more like validating, I think, to read it as that's what he wanted all along. Um, 
you know, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting story, but I remember really enjoying that one as well. You basically talking to you about this has made me think like, okay, I need to jot down all these names so I can like reimagine them as well, because so many I've done like years ago on the podcast. I'm like, it's been too long. I need to do it again. Uh, (laughs) But that's definitely one of them. But it's clear to me that kindness, if it's about identity and the body, kindness so identifies with his new body. I mean, he, Mm -hmm. he's, and, and, um, when he he does end up dying, which is very sad, and um, the um, the one of the Greek characters hails him as the the Maxime Weir. He's he's the greatest man, mm. and and so there's a real yeah. He, he identifies clearly to me as a as a, not just a man, but like a warrior. He does ma- yeah. manly masculine things, and. Um, and and the the fight he has with the centaurs is so laden with sexual innuendo, and he he's penetrating with his sword. It's you know it's, I tried to really play <laughs> play that up a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I really want to yeah. read this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been too long, and I'm like I remember I definitely remember talking about him as a trans character. Yeah, um, but I'm glad to hear that there's like also so much backing on that too of like oh, yeah, yeah the, the level of like no he is thrilled to be the manliest man <laughs> so thrilled and i mean the the, the language of penetration that ovid uses throughout <laughs> and you can know that ovid is so delighting in this i mean there's i had a lot of like thrusting and swiveling and things like that that would clearly <laughs> clearly suggest this is this is battle but it's really you know it's really sex <laughs> that we're yeah about <laughs> yeah Oh, that's great. Oh, there's just, there's, there's so much in the metamorphoses. I was like, I mean, every time I open it up again, I'm like, oh my God, there's just truly, there's, he manages to fit so much incredible content and so many stories into this. Even just reading the Medea, I was reminded how much, like even just her, her dragon chariot rides are also Ovid's way of like peppering in these other transformations that he is like, he didn't have enough time to devote whole stories <laughs> right. to them. So he's like, okay, here you go. Like these ones are also just, she sees them down below. So they're also happening, <laughs> right. but I'm not going to tell you much about them. It's just yeah. so, yeah, it's just, it's just so lovely. And any one of them could have been a major story, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was, I was like Googling each individual one to see what the story was behind it. And so often it was just like, it's just this reference in Ovid. I was like, okay, cool. So he's just like kind of really into just bringing up these like either he had a source that we don't know which is certainly possible or he's just mm-hmm. like nah I just love transformations <laughs> just, <laughs> right right like, yeah just Wait, so many just of feeling them Ovid could Ovid had um he could just have gone on forever telling stories and he's just this masterful yeah. storyteller he oh there's this great line um I think it's oh, it's Hercules he says you know Juno got tired of ordering. I never got tired of doing. Um, and I think that's similar <laughs> of Ovid. I mean, he never got tired of writing. He, he just didn't have enough life to, to keep going forever. But he's, yeah. he's you know, um, he's tireless. And um, nobody can equal his exuberance as a storyteller, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. I think that's especially true even just, I mean, as a obviously a, a obsessor over Greek. But with Ovid like you also get to attribute like he wrote this to write a story in a way that so often is not the we don't know you know about the Greek aspect of it necessarily because of the oral tradition and so when it comes to Rome and specifically Ovid we get to be like no no he 
wrote this with intention. He was telling yeah. a story. You know, it was. It's just so. It's so different in a way that I think we also just really identify as modern people because it's a lot closer to to what yeah. we do now. Um, yeah. yeah, I just he's like my one love in Rome where I'm just kind of like I know I should pay more attention to Rome generally and like I know there's a lot of good stuff in Latin writing but like I don't really care that much except for Ovid who I love <laughs> well I mean but Ovid is so intrigued by myth right I mean that's yes that's well, exactly yeah <laughs> you know you, you know whereas you get um you know a writer like Catullus right who might bring in myth as a sort of parallel for their own his own situation for Ovid the myth is what he's interested in, right? I mean, he prioritizes yeah. myth. It's not just a peppering through the poetry, but it, it is it is the poetry, right? Yeah. He's, yeah. he's the Roman mythographer. Oh, and thank God for him. Thank you, God, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> uh, well, I, one thought just occurred to me, and then I, I, won't, I won't keep you for too much longer, but no, this fine. has been so much fun. Um, but the one thing that I think and I'm trying to think of where this has come up. I feel like it's probably just, you know, angry dudes on the internet. Um, Gosh. But, you know, and actually that just reminds me, I haven't even really talked about, uh, or we haven't even talked about Medusa in Ovid, which is, of course, like, yeah, one of the things that I personally encounter a lot of because people are always like either Ovid is the good version or he's the bad version. You never, <laughs> there's nowhere, nowhere in between. But um, I think a, a lot of times people discredit Ovid's love of greek mythology and mythology broadly in favor of um i'm trying to think of like the political ramifications specifically but in favor of some kind of political thing that he was doing right. what do you do you know the argument i'm <laughs> talking about or also just what do you think about you know his actual feelings for mythology you know i think that i mean again <laughs> If you if you would like to read something that's not mythical, you know, mythological by Ovid, you can, right? I mean, mm -hmm. he he writes the Ars Amatoria. There's myth in there, but you know, again, it's he's using the myth to to give you an exemplum for some other situation. But I mean, the Metamorphoses prioritizes myth, um, and but it also leads me to wonder, you know, what is mythology for, and you know, what is the point of mythology for Ovid? There's so, so many points. I mean, it's about storytelling, right? It's about putting things into a cosmic context, right? Um, mythology lets him explore the entire cosmos uh, from the beginning to, to the end. And it also lets him think about politics, right? It lets him think about power. So to me, mythology serves so many purposes for Ovid. But to say that myth isn't central to the, what the metamorphoses is, is just flat out wrong. Um, because it is, it is the end all and be all with which he weaves everything in the world together. Um, so without these myths, oh my, you know, to me, it is, it is of the utmost importance in the, in the metamorphoses and, and how he brings everything to bear. I mean, mythology is all encompassing. I want to, you know, in, in a way that nothing else would be. Um, and so, you know, to me, what binds us to Ovid so strongly is the metamorphoses. And I think it's because, um, because it is mythical and we still think in these terms, we still think in myth, we still put ourselves in these, you know, these, these themes, um, 
So myth binds us, I think, to Ovid. I don't know if that answers your question or is what you, if, if that was what you were going for. But um, It wasn't a great question anyway, don't worry. No, it's a great question. But I'm no, glad you a, said that. It's a, it's a great question. It, it was a great Well, it wasn't a fully formed question. Then. <laughs> no, it isn't. Because I think that we don't think of Ovid as a source for myth in the same way that we think of mm. like Homer, right? Or Euripides or, um, you know, tragedy or something like that but he's he's such a fascinating um source of myth yeah and i think well he provides so many interesting variations too um yeah where we can also kind of speculate on on did he invent it was he working off of a source we don't have and i love that question of you know because either one is often possible in the story and that just presents so many wonderful thought experiments on you know what is he doing is he just completely making it up for and and then if he is for what reason and and so yeah it's just it's a wonderful source for mythology in its own way yeah I mean he certainly he 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 really calls anybody into doubt who would argue that there is a like an authoritative version of a myth um you know I was just I got a little bit sort of privately sort of amused when you were mentioning Medusa and people arguing about her on the uh, on Twitter I don't post a lot on Twitter but I have you know I've I have witnessed sort of privately the the comments that can often ensue when Medusa comes up and um you know if Ovid wants to there's he's not a bad version of the Medusa myth because there is no authoritative version of the Medusa myth. This is Ovid's version. There's no truth. She's a mythical character. And myth mythology is there almost to be repurposed um, for your own purposes. I mean, this is what we continue to do with mythology. You can tell the myth any damn way you want because it's your version of the myth. Um, you know, I think of uh, Virgil. You know, the very famous Orpheus myth and Eurydice. Mm. Prior mm. to Virgil, it seems as though Orpheus succeeded in bringing Eurydice back, and Virgil was the one who did the wonderful gaze where Orpheus looks back at Eurydice. That's become canonical, um, but that was a huge transformation that, that Virgil yeah. seems to have have made there. I forgot Virgil came before Ovid's. Yes, Ovid and so then too, right? yes, and then Ovid takes yeah. that up, right? Yeah, so okay. then, so Ovid has to inherit that myth uh, yeah. from Virgil, the way Virgil told it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, to me, myths are endlessly transformable, and there's no, there's no uh, standard version. There's no canonical version, and so I just get amused if people say, "Oh, was Medusa raped or not?" Well. She is an Ovid. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I actually like, I I love Ovids for that. I mean, for so many reasons, but so personally, like I I feel very strongly about the Medusa myth and and feel very strongly like you do as well, that there's no canonical anything. Um, But I also have enjoyed at times getting men on the internet angry uh, because (laughs) they show their cards really quickly. Um, Like I once this was ages ago but she used to go viral fairly often and it would just kind of be like okay like what can we do with medusa on on twitter and um and so you know i think i once said that she was a survivor of assault which i think is pretty objectively true in most of the sourcing it's explicit in ovid but in hesiod you know he uses a lot of words to walk around the idea that like she was with poseidon um but it's interesting because like one 
Hesiod doesn't really talk about any kind of explicit assault, but we know that they're in there because it's the gods and everyone else right. <laughs> later talks about it. Poseidon typically assaults people. It's rarely consensual with him. So there's all these different things where it's like, you can still see where Ovid got it. Like, I don't think Ovid invented the assault. You yeah. know, I think yeah. maybe he invented the temple of Athena and like, cool, that's a great setting. You've really, he's like really added a lot, I think, to the story. Um, but it is so interesting the way people react. So like just from tweeting that I had <laughs> so many men yelling at me about how Ovid's Roman. And and I think this is probably where some of the argument came into where where people were saying that like he's not even like, you know, a valid source of mythology because all he was writing was because of his political you know, intentions, whatever, for against Augustus, I can never keep track, like whatever it was, it was like this idea that the entire metamorphosis is actually a political statement and thus not really mythology. And I'm like, you're losing it. And then other people were like, no, Ovid's completely accurate and everyone else is inaccurate. I'm just like, okay, we only need to sit back and like figure out our understanding of how mythology works. And also, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the idea of Ovid, of metamorphosis not being mythology and being exclusively some kind of political statement is laughable (laughs) wow I mean I just to me the idea of of the accurate myth or not is just a (laughs) wild question to to ask of this what's so much more interesting to me is how Ovid is manipulating the myth right um Mm -hmm. I don't want him to give me some kind of standard version if such a thing were even possible with mythology the great thing about Ovid is how endlessly transformable he makes myth Mm-hmm. And you know the the story of Medusa in the temple is, um, in some ways, a way of thinking about a motif of women being raped in temples. I mean, you see this with Cassandra too, right? And uh, and so I I think that you know he's he's weaving together these these myths in a way. He never tells the story of Cassandra. He only kind of alludes to it in sections, and so mm-hmm. but you can kind of see it lurking behind other stories. And and so I think one of those places you can see it lurking, one of those stories you can see it lurking behind is is the Medusa story. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, that's I hadn't thought about anything like that. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think it does just it adds so much, and I think it's also like a kind of an additional commentary on the gods and you know Minerva's yeah. behavior in response to it, and and all these different things. And yeah, I, I could talk about all the variations on Medusa forever, but I won't. <laughs> uh, but I do I do love Ovid's. Like I think it's it's powerful too. Like it really, it brings something new and he's also the first person to give her like a full story and not like a two to three line aside somewhere for a a character who is like objectively quite powerful and important. And that's lovely. Like very grateful to him for that alone, you know? And in such an, in in a classically Ovidian way, he built in a lot of ambivalence, a lot of um, lack of clarity within the story. I mean, he's, his, his line is he um, after after Pisi- or after Neptune. The word he uses there, I believe, is witchy ra. He he for rape. Um, he violates mm-hmm. her, and then uh, it, we're told this does not go unpunished. And the, this is just the word hook, which means like this thing. He doesn't tell us who was punished or how they were punished. Mm. Um, I uh, you know you could easily interpret this as. Not that she gets unpunished, or not that she is punished, but that she's given a power, powerful tool with which to punish others, right? Um, oh, I mean, Ovid really lets you 
get in there and think about the story in lots of different ways. And I think the idea of an official version would make him gasp in horror. (laughs) I'm interested to hear that because a lot of the time, like I I get, there's the meme that goes around, I think some Tumblr or something, there's always a lot of text on it, but I get it sent to me like, I don't know, a couple of times every few months. And, um, and it, it it essentially like purports the idea of that Athena wasn't punishing Medusa, but that she was, you know, helping her. And I think it, right. it, similar in the in the Kenya story of like, you know, this that kind of that kind of transformation as a, like a protective tool against right. future assaults, which you know I think is in a modern sense it it has some connotations that are not ideal. Um, the idea of like becoming monstrous so that you will get raped again. I was like, okay. Right. Yeah. 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 But it is interesting in this kind of ancient sense of of like, you know, seeing that if you take out the modern context, I think it is an interesting way of of viewing it of like, you know, yeah, the, the the punishment could also be her against, against others. And I think Ovid's also one of the first sources um, to suggest that there were people she had turned to stone too mm-hmm. because in in greek textual sources there is no evidence that she ever actually turned anyone to stone until <laughs> perseus came to took her head off which yeah, i find really fascinating yeah. and i i like that about ovid's too kind of m- making her have sort of had a a history of that well, that's interesting yeah i mean clearly ovid has her turning all kinds of people to stone um mm-hmm. but what's so fascinating to me is that um right after this we're told that um that Minerva, that Athena then uses her, right? She puts her on her aegis, right? She, yeah. I mean, to me, that's a powerful protection for um, her because she's a virgin goddess, right? So she uses this mm. very powerful feminine gaze that she creates as a way of averting danger from her own body then. And so, um, you know, to me, oh. yeah. it's a fascinating, a fascinating aspect yeah. of the story. New ways to think about everything. I love that. <laughs> well, clearly, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Oh, good. Uh, oh, my God. I'm like, I've got so many new things to think about and stories I want to revisit. And just generally, um, yeah, I, thank you so much for doing this. It's been really wonderful. Oh, I'm so pleased to, to have come on the podcast. As I said, I'm a fan. And uh, so it's a big treat for me. Thank you. Thank you for being a fan. That means a whole lot. <laughs> I'm like, just, it's, a, it's an added thrill. So thank you so much. But uh, yeah, truly, like, I'm so excited for this book. Uh, by the time it comes out, I will have a copy um, and be probably posting it everywhere as well. But as somebody who just loves Ovid so much, I'm really excited to have a new version and a version by, by a woman with this feminist aspect. So I don't know. Thank you for doing it. No, now I'm just you. like fawning <laughs> over you. So thank oh, you. No. Go on. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, no. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Okay. So many thank yous. I, I will share with my listeners kind of where, you know, they can buy it. It is published by Penguin Random House, which is also very cool. I meant to say earlier, because that means it's going to be available really everywhere and probably not like an absurd academic price too which is right. great for everyone looking for a new translation. Yes. Other than, you know, where to find the book, which I will share with the listeners else are, you know, in the description and everything. Um, is there anything that you want to, to plug for people to follow you? Anything? Um, I mean, I, I mentioned the fact that I'm on Twitter, although I, t- I tweet with uh, infrequency, I would say. And um, 
But yeah, I'm there. I have a website, um, stephaniemccardo.com. I usually keep it pretty up to date with things that I've written, things that are coming out. Um, yeah, so those, I guess those are places where people can find out more about me if they're interested. Wonderful. I will put all of that in this episode's description as well so they can easily link to everything. Uh, and just, again, thank you so much for doing this. It's been really, really fun. Oh, good. It was a thrill. Uh, nerds, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Fuck, this one was so fascinating. I could talk about Ovid and the intricacies of translation forever. I would be perfectly happy with that for the rest of my life. It's just so interesting. Anyway, you heard it. You agree. I'll stop. You can find this new translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses wherever you get your books. I know it's out now in North America, but I did hear that the UK might have to wait a bit for once. It's always me waiting on Natalie Haynes' novels, and now it's your turn, jerks. Huge thanks to Stephanie for joining me. What a thrill. I'm just truly so pumped about this translation. You have no idea. You can follow Stephanie on Twitter or check out her website, all of which are in this episode's description. Gods, this is fun. I can't wait to share more Ovid with you on the podcast. As if I didn't love him enough. Now I have this translation? Life is good. <laughs> Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. She does so much. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek myth and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click on the link in this episode's description. Thank you all. You're the absolute best. I am Liv and I love this shit. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. 
with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.